Good morning, Rolling Hills. My name's Mark Couchet. I'm the executive pastor here, and I get to do something this morning I really enjoy doing. I want to introduce Pastor Jen Goldbranson. Um, Jen has been serving here for how long as a pastor? This July, 25 years. 25 years. She has served in middle school, high school, students, and now over the last year and a half, Jen has rose up into our senior leadership, and I couldn't be more proud of her to see how she has just grown, but also how she is uh, leading and taking care of our other pastors. And right now, she is uh, our lead ministry pastor. And Jen, which, uh, which ministries are you over? So I get to... Um support and care for the kids' team, uh, the students' team, women's, men's, community, and young adults. <laughs> so she's, she's one of the right hands here that we couldn't do it without her. One of the things I'm excited about today is about two years ago, the elders established a sabbatical program for pastors that have been here for a certain amount of time. And Jen has certainly met that qualification. But she is gonna be going on sabbatical here in two weeks. And so, Jen, we want to pray for you and send you off. What are some of the things we could pray for you while you're on sabbatical? Um, well, we're going on a big vacation, and we want to stay healthy so we can enjoy that vacation. Um, because I spent over two decades working in student ministries, my kids have only known mom to be super busy in the summer. And so this summer, we're going to spend a tremendous amount of time together. They're going to love it. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, yeah, forced family fun. And uh, we're just gonna do a lot of relaxing together and being a family, and, uh, and I'm a go-getter, so the, the prayer request would be that I don't feel guilty for this. <laughs> but yeah. Awesome, so if you could just raise your hand, raise it forward, we're gonna pray over Jen. Lord, I thank you so much for Pastor Jen and just uh, how you've used her here for 25 years, Lord. We thank you for the gifts of leadership that you've put inside her. Uh, and we thank you for her ability to shepherd now those other pastors under her. Lord, as she begins this sabbatical journey with herself, her family, and you, we just ask you to protect them. We ask you to keep them safe, Lord. We ask you to just be a sweet time for Jen to be able to refresh and renew and recharge, Lord. We ask all of this in your precious, precious name. Amen. All right, let's give her a round. So this weekend is very important to me. I'm a combat veteran, but it is Memorial Day weekend. And unlike Veterans Day, Veterans Day is very different. Veterans Day is where we thank those veterans that are still alive and are still serving. Memorial Day, though, can sometimes get lost in the barbecues and the long weekend trips and the sales. But Memorial Day is for honoring those men and women, uh, husbands, wives, fathers, daughters, moms and dads, who gave the ultimate sacrifice defending our freedom. And so we want to take a moment today and pray uh, for those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. So if you could please bow your heads. Dear Lord, on this Memorial Day weekend, we pray for those who have courageously laid down their lives for the cause of freedom, the very freedom that allows us to gather here this morning. May the examples of their sacrifice inspire in us the selfless love of your son, Jesus Christ. Bless those families of the fallen troops and fill their homes, their lives with your strength and peace. We ask this in your precious name, amen. And I would ask you, if you, if you have a moment today or tomorrow, 
If you want to see a beautiful tribute for those who've given the ultimate sacrifice, take a trip to Willamette Cemetery. It's right off 205, and you can see a beautiful tribute to those that have given the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I know that's more than just an abstract idea. That's very real and personal for you. I appreciate you leading us in that. And I hope every one of you, you, you are able to do that. Um, so enjoy this weekend, another beautiful Oregon Memorial Day weekend, uh, but also to remember the occasion that we have to celebrate. Uh, I hope you're able to do that. Um, thank you so much for being here. I, I know we've, we've already prayed a lot uh, today, but I don't think you can pray too much. And I think I just want to acknowledge, uh, Josh alluded to it this morning as uh, he was uh, opening things up in, uh, in worship. Uh, it's just been another heavy week uh, with uh, what happened in Uvalde. Uh, there's just a, so we're all probably carrying that to one degree or another. Uh, and many of you are just in addition to that You've got other things that are just kind of weighing on your shoulders and weighing on your hearts. And uh, so we're not, it's, it's always true every week, but some weeks more than others, we're just not coming in here neutral. And we got, uh, maybe it was a great week, maybe it was a really hard one, but I'd love for us to just pray one more time and, uh, and just listen to God, let him sort of order our thoughts and so we kind of know where we are before we start letting him teach us. So uh, if you'll indulge me, we're gonna just pray a little bit again. Let's bow our heads. God, thank you that you are patient with us and you're, you're just gracious to us and you, you, are, you love us enough to kind of receive us in this moment as we are. Uh, I know for myself, I've, uh, you know, I've just kind of had moments this week where I've just kind of been uh, uh, I, you know, less than I would like to be, for sure. Um, so I'm kind of staring at my own hypocrisy, um, but just uh, grateful that you're here uh, to, uh, to set me, you know, set me right uh, through your goodness and your mercy. I just want to sit quietly um, for just a few moments, Lord, and let you speak to me and speak to our people here and help us to uh, be in a place to receive from you. Thanks, God. Uh, we're grateful that you teach us, and uh, we're trusting that you're going to do it today and uh, open my mouth when it needs to be open and shut it when it needs to be shut and help our ears uh, to always be listening for your truth and your spirit. Amen. All right. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Amen. I love it. Uh, I'm fully, I'm, I'm, I think I'm fully geared up and equipped. Uh, if you've been here more than, if this is like more than your first time and, and You've seen me teach before. By the way, I'm Aaron. I'm, one of the, I'm the worship pastor, but I'm on the teaching team. So I'm not the... Uh, Bill is our regular, of course, uh, lead pastor, and he'll be back uh, next week and the week after. Um, normally, I'm, I'm part of the worship team. But uh, it, the last few times I've taught, I've, I probably have set some record for the ugliest crying in the messages. So uh, similar to like when you take an umbrella, it never rains. Um, I got the Kleenex, so I'm not going to cry. That's how it works. Although, it worked at the nine until like the Bible bumped the Kleenex off the desk and within two minutes. <laughs> so it needs to stay up here. Anyway, here we go. All right, so uh, hello. Well, I'm glad you're here. 
we're doing, uh, if, you, if you walked in, you saw something that said pro tip on, uh, on the screens. So pro tip is our new little venture that Bill, Bill had the idea that in between our longer series that, we're gonna be, that we teach, uh, we can do these little one-offs where we can address something maybe specific that would be helpful or we think is really needed for our church to hear. So, you know, we, we went through the book of Mark. We took a whole year to do that. And then we did a five-week series starting on Easter called Choosing Hope, and that ended just last week. Next week, as you heard in the loop, is Hope Sunday. Just one gathering. What time is it? 10 a.m., great. Tell your friends and neighbors, because I guarantee you there will be people here at 9 going, where's the coffee? So 10 a.m. next week, but the week after, I'm really excited. We're going to start a series that's going to go all summer in the book of Acts. Love the book of Acts. It's full of action, full of just interest, very cool. But in between those series, we're doing a little pro tip. So this is the first one, and as we were talking about, well, what should it be? Uh, Tyler, one of our other uh, teaching team members, he was like, you know, we need to talk about the Bible. Like we teach from the Bible, but biblical literacy, like kind of knowing like what is it about? How did it get here? Can we trust it? How do we use this thing? That's really kind of gone down. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been on social media at any point, uh, people have a hard time really like agreeing on things these days. <laughs> and, uh, we've, so we're, we're kind of in a crisis of knowledge where we're, we're losing the ability to know what we know, you know? We're, and, and so what's happening is because we've lost the ability to trust authority. We have so much information pouring at us. It is more than our brains are really designed to process in a way where we can, you know, check details, check sources, and, you know, separate truth from fact. And so what we're resorting to is just uh, finding kind of our we're idolizing and deifying people that are authorities in the area that we agree with. And we're putting all of our eggs in their basket and demonizing anything that, that doesn't agree with them. We're losing the ability to sift through information to find out what is true and what is real. And as a, as a consequence, I mean, we are just rudderless. We're just floating out there and we get jerked around emotionally and intellectually all over the place. Our souls are like dehydrated. We're just totally malnourished. I mean, I feel it. And I think a major part of that is that we have lost the picture of what it is to trust in something that no matter what is going on in our world, no matter who's in charge, no matter what's happening in our life, there is someone and something that can root us and anchor us. And I believe it's the Bible. And I want us to kind of learn just, it's like a 30-minute flyby of what the Bible is, how we handle it, and why that even matters today. Why it even matters today. Psalm chapter 1, the first psalm, says that um, a person who meditates on the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by a stream of water. So it never grows weary or withers, and it always bears fruit in season. That's the picture of an ideal person rooted in the very words of God. And so that, that's kind of how we want to do this. But, I mean, we teach from the Bible every week. But if you're new to the Bible, or maybe you've, you're not new to reading it, but somewhere along the line, you kind of got the idea that maybe it's just the sort of you know, rule book that dropped out of heaven. 
Or you might be one of those people that's like, it's just like, it's, it's patriarchy written by old dead men. What is this thing? What is this? I mean, you might be one of those that's like, God says it, that settles it. That's how it works. And then you're reading along and it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. You're like, oh, well, maybe I won't do that, right? So, or you go to the part in Exodus where it gives us the really important advice about not boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, oh, all right, hang on to that one. Put the post it. That's just in case. That's important. What is this book? How are we to handle it and understand it? We need to come to the Bible on its own terms. Uh, so let, let's look at this, because it actually it didn't always exist in this little uh, neatly bound codex, which, by the way, irony of all ironies, I'm teaching about the Bible today, and I left my Bible at home. I forgot it. <laughs> this is my backup Bible. I had this one in middle school, and it's just sitting on my shelf. I'm like, I'm, I'm calling you out of reserves. So my middle school Bible is back. It still works. Go figure. Uh, but, okay. <laughs> what is the Bible? Is it a rule book? Is it uh, just nice, inspiring stories that we can use to uh, maybe, you know, self-help? No, but here's what it is. Uh, the old Easton Bible Dictionary from like 1893 says it's a library of divine revelation. It's a library. It's actually a collection of works. 66 books in the Protestant version of the Bible. Multiple writers, over 40, uh, written over 1,600 years of time, from, from the oldest to the, to the last one, 1,600-year period that it was being written, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. Crazy. It's a long, big collection of works, but it's one unified story. It is remarkable how when you read it as a unified, connected story, how all these things begin to piece together. And, and the things like what you have, not boiling a goat in its mother's milk or what, it, what is really meant when it says greet each other with the Holy All those things that are like, what is that? They start to become, they make more sense. I don't know if you've ever watched the Marvel series, you know, the movies, like you can kind of drop in and watch one. You're like, cool, but like, who's that? Why does that matter? If you watch it, though, it's like, oh, from the first one to the end, all of a sudden, like, when, uh, what's his name? Falcon says, uh, on your left, right at the end, that epic moment to Captain America, you're like, oh, I know why that's, like, cool, because I saw another movie way back. It's a, it's a unified story, the Bible is. It's, it's better than Marvel, believe it or not. Uh, so, in fact, I've kind of summarized what this unified story is about, because that helps us frame how we approach the Bible. Uh, go ahead and throw that up, Ted. Uh, so it's one unified story of God rescuing a people, and that includes us, calling them into a special covenant relationship, all right? So like a marriage, a covenant relationship, a relationship of promise, to be formed by him, so we should expect to be changed as we read the Bible. Sending and sending them, that's us, into the world as his redeemed ambassadors to tell others the good news about him, his character, his saving work, and his redemptive plan. Okay, that's what the Bible is, and that's how we need to approach it. So let's look at what the Bible says about itself, shall we? 
Uh, we do this in any relationship. Before you go, wait a second, that's circular reasoning. If you tell the Bible to tell me what the Bible is, that's circular reasoning. Well, yes and no. In, in any system of knowledge, there's circularity in it. When we have relationships with somebody, like if I'm, uh, Kurt is mixing sound this week, and if I asked Kurt, Kurt, I want to know him, I would go, Kurt, tell me about yourself. Okay, I would ask him to just self-witness, to self-attest about himself. And I'm going to take Kurt as the ultimate authority on Kurt until such time as I see, like, a contradiction with the reality around me. And then I go, Kurt, you said this, but I see this. Help me understand. Okay, we, so we do that in all systems of knowledge and all relationships. We let the source be the authority until such time as it seems like there's a contradiction. We even do it with science, right? The scientific method can't prove the scientific method. Does that make sense? But it relies on uh, the assumption that tomorrow gravity will work the same day, the same way as it did today. Although it'd be cool if, you know, tomorrow, like, it didn't, and then I could dunk a basketball. That was my, that's my dream. So. But you understand that? So um, science uses the scientific method, but it, it, it has an assumption of the principle of uniformity and consistency in the universe. And we're okay with that. So we can be okay looking at the Bible and going, okay, Bible, tell us, tell us about yourself. All right, so that's what we're going to do. What does the Bible say about the Bible? Well, first it says it's authored by God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That Greek word there is literally means it's spirited by God. So the Spirit of God breathed out these words for us. It is God-breathed. And since God is the author, we say that it is authoritative. Right? If God's in charge and he gives these words to us and they come from him, then we're going to say, hmm, I'm going I'm to place myself underneath the authority of these words. And that can be hard for us to do, especially since it's such an old book. If we come to it with sort of our modern sensibility that, you know, well, we have this assumption that as time progresses, so do we. And that hasn't always been the case. History actually proves that. Sometimes we regress. The 20th century alone is proof that more knowledge does not always equal more wisdom, more compassion, a better society. Sometimes it means genocide and world wars and Jim Crow. So we, can't, we need to not take for granted that as we progress in time, that now we are more enlightened and more informed, and so that then when we go back to an ancient book and we see things that we have a hard time accepting, that we're going to go, well, that's because it's old and we know better. Frankly, that's, that's kind of, you know, it's like a chronological colonialization, if that makes sense, right? We have to remember that the Bible is authored by God, but it's also written with human agents, and God chose to embed his truth that exists for all time and all people within a specific time and a specific people. So when we open up the Bible, we are visiting a new culture. We're, it's, like we're it's like we're flying across to another continent, and when you show up, you don't go, hey, welcome, I'm going to show you how the world really ought to be. You go, okay, you, you kind of humble yourself. You go, okay, I'm visiting you, so I'm going to learn to understand this culture before I start to critique it. And that's how we need to be honestly with the Bible when we approach it. Right? We need to humbly come to it and go, okay, 
I'm not gonna just import all my ideas and as soon as I find something I don't agree with, go, it's old, it's irrelevant. I'm gonna, wait a second, there's friction here between how I feel and what this says. What am I gonna do with that? So what we need to do is people who are choosing to follow after God is go, if this is authoritative, then I need to wrestle with this. I need to look inside myself, I need to examine myself as I'm examining the Bible. So it's written by human agents. And sorry, Ted, I, I just, you know, monologued. And <laughs> there we go, this other verse, 2 Peter 1.21. I really like this verse to help describe the interplay between God and the writers that God chose. It's written with human agents. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, all right, it's by God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's a great picture in the Bible describing how the Bible was written. The Holy Spirit is the initiating agent, the one who's guiding and carrying along these writers, but it is human writers. The Bible actually talks about how it was written. The first verse in the Bible that talks about the Bible being written is, uh, where do you think it is? Not all at once. Slow down, everyone. <laughs> Somebody yell something out. What's that? Exodus! Colin, my man. Okay, what chapter? Somewhere after 20. Close. You're, I, 24, that's the second time. The first time is Exodus 17. Exodus 17. Uh, there's the story of uh, the Amalekites. They are ambushing and attacking Israel in the wilderness. This is this new people. They don't know how to fight. They just, they've been in 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They're out wandering the wilderness. The Amalekites come, and they're picking off the weak, and they're attacking. So Israel goes to war with the Amalekites, and Moses is holding up his hands, and he's got Aaron and uh, the other priest, her, I think, holding them up. After that battle is done, and God saves Israel, he says to Moses, okay, uh, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it. It's the first time in the Bible that it talks about, write this down. And it's, it's not like eyes roll back in the head and, and I'm going to just kind of drop stuff. It's like, hey, Moses, write this down, what you saw today. So he wrote it down. No scandal. It's God-authored, God-initiated, but he's using humans to write down what God's doing in their very day. Jeremiah 36, the whole chapter, poor Jeremiah. So he writes, God tells him at the beginning of chapter 36, Jeremiah, I want you to write down on a scroll all the things that I've told you to tell Judah, okay? God's people who have been disobedient because Babylon is coming. You are going to be judged. So Jeremiah has to write down this really bad news. It's uh, politically unfavorable. He's not gonna win any points for writing this down. So he has his buddy, his little uh, disciple, prophet, scribe guy named Baruch. So Jeremiah dictates to Baruch the scroll of, of everything that he needs to tell. So Baruch writes down on all these scrolls. He's just dictating and he's taking down everything that Jeremiah says. Then they go and read the scroll and Baruch is then taken to the king, Jehoiakim. He's a bad king. The scroll is read, and Jehoiakim just takes bits of it, rips it off, and throws it in the little fireplace that he's got in front of him because it was winter. So as it's read, have you ever like lost a term paper, you know, after you've worked on it, and then you forget to save it, and it's gone? So that's poor Jeremiah and Baruch. Like, they spent all this time. God said, 
And then Jehoiakim rips it up and burns it. So at the end of 36, Baruch goes back to Jeremiah. He's like, yeah, king burned the scrolls. And so God says, okay, write it down again. So they go back and write the whole thing down again. And then at the end of chapter 36, it says, and many similar words were added to it. So the scroll that we have today is actually got added stuff that was different than the first scroll that the king burned. But God was over all of that. And he used humans to do it. Last one, Luke 1.3. I love this. Luke's like, hey, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you that you may have certainty. It's one of the gospels. It's like, hey, I've, I've heard all the other stuff. I've been reading things and it seemed good to me to go ahead and make a real orderly account. Why did it seem good to him? Because the Holy Spirit said, Luke, I've gifted you with an attention to detail. You're a physician. You study things. You see things. And I want you to write down an orderly account of what's happened. Why? So that people can have certainty about what they're believing. I want you to do that, Luke, because I know how you are. And I'll guide you through the process. That's how the Bible was written. So the fact that there are humans that are in a specific time and a specific place involved, doesn't, that's not a design flaw in the Bible. It actually makes the way the Bible was made consistent with what the Bible means. If it is a unified story of God rescuing a people and forming a people and calling them to be ambassadors, so God doesn't need us, but he has chosen in his generosity to use us and to work with us in relationship to tell about him. So it makes sense that when God wants to tell people about him in the Bible, that he would say, hey, Jeremiah, write stuff down in the scroll. And after the king burns it, write it down again. Looks, and you're gonna have some new words after that, right? Hey, Luke, you're super detailed. I want you to write another story about this. I want you to use all the evidence you've been gathering. It's not a design flaw. It's not a bug that we're gonna notice that, oh, David's psalms sound different than Asaph's psalms. Oh, this is like history, but it kind of uses round numbers. What are we going to do with that? We, use, we accept that the Bible is written in common language of a particular time, and we take it with the authority of God in that common language. All right? We don't apply our modern sense of language precision to another culture. That's just arrogant. We don't need to do that. We take the Bible the way God designed it in the time and the place. He incarnated the Bible into a specific place, kind of like Jesus. Jesus didn't show up as a cultureless, transcendent person. He showed up as a Middle Eastern Jew in the first century. But his life has application and consequence and authority for all time and all people, including us today. And so does the Bible. So does the Bible. Where are we? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the Bible's authored by God. It's written by human agents. It's kind of like um, a wave and a surfer, right? If a, if a surfer doesn't have a wave, he's just paddling. He's not surfing. But when a wave comes, that's the energy, that's the motion that pushes the surfer forward. But each surfer kind of has a different style to them. If you watch them, you know, you'll see at surfing competitions, you know, they're a different surfer will, will approach a wave a different way, but they're all dependent on the wave for the energy and the direction. That's how it works, and that's kind of how the Bible works. God's using different people with different styles, different strategies, different experiences, but he's the one that's initiating. He's the authority behind it. But we believe that the Bible is truthful. 
It is true in all that it intends to teach, and it is without error in everything that it actually teaches. We call that inerrancy. And some people, one of the problems with the word inerrancy is that it focuses on the idea that there might be an error. And then you start hunting for mistakes. But the Bible is truthful in the language that it uses for the, and the words that it chooses for what it intends to teach. And uh, J.I. Packer, great Bible guy, he says this about the inerrancy. The idea is that it's an advanced commitment to receive as truth from God all that upon inspection the Bible is found to actually teach. Okay, it's kind of Yoda speak, but let's break it down. Advanced commitment. So before I show up to the Bible, I'm like, all right, in advance, I'm committing to go, okay, to receive as truth from God. Okay, this is gonna be truth from God. All that upon my inspection, that's through reading it, through studying commentaries, listening to teachers, that is the Bible is found to actually teach. So we're just saying, I'm gonna to come to the Bible on its terms. I'm gonna understand what it is trying to teach me. And I'm gonna commit that that's to receive that as truth, to receive it as truth. And it is, it is true. It's not a myth. And the Bible even talks about this, that it's not just kind of made up stories. Uh, look at Acts 1, 21 through 22 and, and 2 Peter uh, 16. A couple of verses that remind us that it's important for us to remember that like this stuff actually happened. So in Acts 1, 21 through 22, they need to find a replacement for Judas. He betrayed Jesus, hung himself. Jesus is now ascended into heaven and the 11 remaining apostles are sitting together and Peter's like, we need to find somebody to replace Judas. And what's the qualification for Judas for the replacement? So one of the men, they're saying, who have accompanied us during all that time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Does it make sense? So as they're like going, okay, who's gonna replace Judas? What was important to them is that like this, this guy has to be somebody who was with us and saw Jesus be baptized and was with us the whole time while Jesus was teaching and saw his crucifixion and his resurrection. It was important that they pick an eyewitness. And then 2 Peter 1.16, where Peter's talking about how they're writing the book, they're writing the Bibles. And we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Again, the Bible is like telling us how to read it. We're supposed to read it like stuff really happened. These aren't just inspiring stories. They're real, they're true. We need to allow ourselves to be submitted to those. Uh, the other thing about the Bible, real quick, is that it's complete and it's sufficient for what it intends to teach. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything, but it does tell us enough for what we need and what is it that we need. So here, John 20, 30 through 33, John is wrapping up his gospel and he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's a bunch of stuff about Jesus that doesn't get written down. I can't wait to find out more about what he did. I wish it was written down, but I gotta trust God that some of that stuff I don't need to know. Because, but these are written, so what John did write, are written so that, why? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why what is written is written. 
Okay, so we're not going to learn everything about quantum physics or Newtonian physics in the Bible. We're not going to learn about the heliocentric solar system in the Bible. Although the Bible has unbelievable accuracy and compatible truths with the world that sometimes is in advance of what scientific discovery discovers. But those are corresponding truths that give us some added confirmation about the validity of the Bible. But we don't anchor our belief in the Bible to the fact that this verse seems to correspond with what we see in science right now. Because science is based on human knowledge and it's a moving target. Sometimes it'll correspond. Sometimes it might apparently not. And then we just investigate and we have watchful waiting. But what is written is written for what? That we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we have life in his name. So we trust God with what is written. We trust God with what isn't written. I wish the Bible, I wish there was a place we could go in the Bible and look up the chapter on how to stop mass shootings. We don't have it. I wish we could go, ah, proper cancer treatment. There it is. We don't have that stuff. But what we do have in the Bible is verses like in Psalm 82, where it says to look after the fatherless and the widow. We have verses that describe the type of people that we are supposed to become that allow us to press back against the evil and, the, and the, the sadness and the hurt that impacts us all. If God gave us everything just in words, we wouldn't lean on him. We wouldn't lean on each other. The Bible tells us we need spirit-led community. That's why we have us. All right. The point is, we need to take the Bible on its own terms. The Bible is a unified, true story of good news from God for us, about God and us. It's uniquely, supremely authoritative in our lives, and it's reliably truthful without error in all it intends to teach us. That is how we approach the Bible, humbly, but with, with courage. All right? Well, if we understand the Bible's unified story, that should direct how we approach and use it. And one of the things we need to remember is that stories, you gotta immerse yourself in a story. It's not a reference book where you kind of drop in. What does the Bible say about this? And then you drop out. What does the Bible say about what gauge of wire I should use in my van build? It doesn't tell me that. I'm building a van, and what I've learned is that at, um, we're, we're building like a little sprinter van, you know, to kind of do like camper van conversion trips and all that. And uh, I've learned that I don't know a lot about how to do that. So you watch a bunch of YouTubes, by the way, yeah. Uh, you know, go on YouTube and look up van life and you, you just lost half a day. You're welcome and I'm sorry. But what I've learned is I'm trying to learn how to like do wiring in the van. And so I'll just look up how somebody just goes, you know, they just plug stuff in. I'm like, okay, I can try that. But I haven't immersed myself in what like 12 volt electricity is. And so I'll come along and like, oh wait, this doesn't quite fit. And what if, what if that cable sets on fire? And, I don't know. So I know enough to be dangerous or paranoid, but not enough to like really be immersed and, and smart about it, okay? And because the Bible is not just a reference manual, but a story, we have to immerse ourselves in that story. We need to be fluent in it. It's like when you're learning a language, you know, you can walk around with a phrase book, but that's different than knowing a language, right? And we need to immerse ourselves in the Bible so that we can use it and apply it in our own lives and the lives of others. So how do we handle the Bible? 
Well, let's look at what it's designed for and its intended use. So 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. So Paul is an apostle. He's, a, he's um, been raising up young Timothy. Timothy's not so young anymore. He's in charge of a church in Ephesus. And Paul's saying, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I think it's cool. Paul is talking to Timothy about the sacred writings that make him wise for salvation in Jesus. The sacred writings in, that, in those days were the Old Testament. You know, we sometimes like, well, there's the Old Testament with the angry God, and then Jesus comes and everything's great. Paul's saying, like, the Old Testament is what has made you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And what I love about Timothy, too, is it's, it's Lois and Eunice. His grandma, I love those names. His grandma and mom are the ones that taught Timothy up. Lois and Eunice. Her parents, like, be the lead learner with your, um, with your kids. Just, like, get into the Bible and figure it out together. And when you come to places like, I don't know what this means, we'll figure it out, kids, right? But what does it say? Okay, all scripture is breathed out by God. We, we heard that. But it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so that is what the Bible is for. That's how we should handle it. We should allow it to teach us. We should allow it to correct us. We should allow it to, you know, knock us on the back of the head when we're not being right. Uh, we should be trained in righteousness, and we should know that it's going to help complete us and equip us for every good work. I love this quote by uh, Rich Mullins from a song that he wrote a long time ago. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It's the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. So we're approaching the Bible like it should be something that, that makes us and shapes us and forms us. Right? We let the Bible examine us and teach us rather than us trying to examine the Bible, figure out where it's right, where it's wrong, and shape it, change it to what we want. The Bible shapes and changes us into what God wants us to be. Cool? Okay. Um, how did Jesus use the Bible? Because at the end of the day, really, like, that's kind of the ultimate endorsement, right, of how to use the Bible. Is, well, how did Jesus handle it? Here's a quick summary of what Jesus' opinion of the Bible, which again, in those days, it's the Old Testament. So that Jesus handled it. So Luke chapter four, he gets up in the, the synagogue. That's kind of their, their local church. He unrolls a scroll of Isaiah out to 61, and he reads from it as a prophecy about him. And he sits down and says, today that prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. He uses the Old Testament to justify his ministry. He quotes Genesis one and two when there's a debate about marriage and divorce. He goes back to the oldest books in the Bible to get to have authority about a very modern topic at the time. That's a modern topic today. What's marriage? What's divorce? Jesus goes back to the oldest books in the Bible to talk about that. He quotes Exodus 3.6 when discussing a theological concept of resurrection with some other religious leaders. He calls Psalm 82 the word of God. And he says scripture can't be broken in John 10.35. He calls Exodus 20.12, which is children honor your father and your mother. Hey, girls. He calls it the command of God, and he uses it to refute some newer teachings that had showed up in his day and age by the Pharisees. So again, God's going, Jesus is going old school, saying this is, this is true. This new idea that you've got, this new little tradition and rule that you set up, uh-uh. He goes back 1,500 years from his time, 
And he says, not a jot or iota of this thing's gonna pass away until all is accomplished. That's how Jesus approaches the Bible. If he takes it that seriously, we probably should too. We probably should too. And you're like, well, that's Jesus. Jesus wrote the thing. So like, how can I even get into this? Well, what I love about the Bible is it's like the ocean. It is, like, the Pacific Ocean is infinitely exhaustible, right? I mean, it's huge. It's full of mystery. You know, to go to the depths of the ocean, you need specialized equipment, uh, you know, submarines that can, you know, handle high pressure to go down to the Mariana Trench in the Philippines. But me and my pasty white organ legs and my trunks can wade into it. I can walk into the Pacific Ocean today. You can wade into the Bible. You don't have to know everything to get into it and to begin that journey. Deuteronomy 29, 29, so cool. It says, um, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we, we may do the words of this law. I love that because it's like, man, some of this stuff is just hard to figure out. But the things that are revealed, they belong to us and our kids. We can figure this out. You know, the Bible even tell, talks about the Bible being confusing. Peter, at the end of 2 Peter, he talks about things that Paul wrote. And he's like, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. That's in the Bible. Like, Peter's kind of calling out Paul. He's like, he's kind of hard to understand. That's okay. But he's like, but you need to, don't be ignorant and start twisting it. Study it. Learn it. Immerse yourself in it. So let's look at some reading plans, okay? What are we gonna do about this? If, if you're gonna start reading the Bible, what should you do? Just some practical stuff. Uh, throw them up there, Ted. Here we go. All right, version. It's an app on this here phone. Uh, and there's tons of Bible reading plans on there that you could pick. Uh, the Read Scripture app is great. If you are not a, an appy, devicey kind of person and you happen to have a paper Bible around, just one chapter of Old Testament, one chapter of New Testament, one psalm a day. It's like three chapters that'll get you through the Bible in a year. All right, just, that's easy. Four, and do four times a week as a goal to start with. There was a study recently done that if you get that much Bible in a week, maybe like 15 minutes per time, it changes your perspective, it changes your, uh, your emotional state, it changes how you evaluate things, it changes how you behave around other people, just by immersing yourself in the Bible four times a week for about 15 minutes. But just do something. Done is better than perfect. Don't spend all your time trying to figure out the perfect, you know, you'll never, you'll never start. Just start. Uh, some resources if you're going, I'm still not exactly sure about the Bible. Uh, Can We Trust the Bible by Craig Blomberg. That one's more academic, uh, but it's, if, you're, if you want to dive into that, go for it. Craig Blomberg, Can We Still Trust the Bible. Bibleproject.com does a great job of summarizing uh, how books were written, what they're for, so that kind of when you're in the weeds, you can kind of pull back out and get like a three to five minute video that's like, oh, that's right, that's, that's where we are in the story, all right? Uh, Tim Mackey, who is part of the Bible Project, did a great video on the making of the Bible, um, how, it, how it came to be. Uh, another gospel, that's an apologetic book, but there's a chapter in there on the Bible and the reliability of it. Uh, speaking of which, Bill's messages on April 10th and April 17th, that was Palm Sunday and Easter, great messages where he just talks about the manuscript evidence that while the Bible is an ancient book, it is in an entirely different universe as far as the amount of manuscript evidence that verifies its reliability. Like the closest thing, Homer's Iliad, is just miles and miles and miles away as far as the number of manuscripts that we have. 
So the Bible is unbelievably reliable in a unique category of its own as far as an ancient document that we can trust, okay? So those are some great resources. But why does this matter today to you, to us? Because it cultivates a counterculture, a counterculture people who are led by the Holy Spirit and instructed by wisdom. Uh, Peter, I love at one point when people were starting to leave Jesus because he was given some tough teachings, he's like, where else will we go? You have the words of life. The Bible gives us the words of life. Uh, Tim Keller has this quote. He said, contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. But Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us looking for things that God can't accept. Then, the sweet grace offered, the beauty of his love and forgiveness will mean something to you. Psalm 119 is a love letter to the Bible, to God's word. Like, really? They loved the, these people really loved the scriptures. And you can go through Psalm 119, and you can take a picture of this one. If you're feeling lost and directionless, Psalm 119.105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. If you're feeling insecure and threatened, Psalm 119.44 through 45, it says, I will trust in your law and I will walk in wide places because I have sought your statutes. I love the idea that, that when we put ourselves under the authority of the Bible, it opens up our life to us. It makes us feel more secure, not more restricted. It makes us feel more free. We're feeling condemned and doomed. Psalm 119 talks about the unique hope that the Bible gives. Pain and misery, it speaks to all of these. Psalm 119 is a remarkable book that just speaks about how many different ways the words of God given to us give us life. We need to be a tree planted by streams of living water. So we're not dehydrated. Our souls aren't left begging and just sapped for strength. I, when things go wrong, I find myself not going to this, and then I wonder, like, why do I feel so? Ugh? It's because I'm drinking from poison. If I'm sorry, if if MSNBC or Fox News, or Newsmax, or wh wherever you're going, or whatever feed you're on, if that is your stream, if that is your source for figuring out how you're gonna handle the world this week, you're dying. Your soul is shriveling up. You're doing it wrong. If those are your sources of authority, or your sources of hope, or the way that you're trying to sort out what's real and what's not and how you ought to handle this week, you're doing it wrong. I'm doing it wrong. Start here, end here. All the other sources, you know, we need stuff, right? The Bible doesn't say everything about everything. But we will totally misconstrue all the other information, misuse all the other information that comes at us if we don't start here and end here. And it should be in the middle, too. I wish I could see Jesus sometimes. Like, Jesus, come over here. Tell me, how do we handle this? But what I love is in Luke, Luke 24, Jesus does something really cool with a couple of people, followers of his. So Jesus is risen from the dead. There's rumors floating around. Because not everybody's seen him yet. 
And so there's all kinds of confusion. I don't know what's going on. The news doesn't seem to, not everything's adding up. And he talks to these people, but they don't recognize him. So he's walking with him. And they're like, some people say he's rose, but we don't know what's going on. And Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. Isn't that nice? That's what he says to us. Uh, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, and then he says, and beginning with Moses, all right, Old Testament, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. So he went back and he's like, this right here, Genesis 3, the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent. In Genesis 12, the promised offspring of Abraham that would bless all the nations. In Exodus, the Passover lamb, where the blood over the doorposts would protect the families from God's judgment. Uh, King David, the one after God's own heart, who would sit, and his descendant, who would sit on the throne forever. There I was. That was the Messiah. And check out what happens. So then later they, they recognize him, and he goes, poof, and he disappears. And this is what they say to us. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Well, he opened to us the scriptures. You know, I want to see Jesus. I'd love to have him here, but we have him here. Do you see the Lord? We had this old, uh, my girls are laughing at me. Here. We we had this uh, book, it's called the Jesus, uh, the Big Picture Storybook Bible. And there is the section in it that says, do you see the Lord? And these guys are like, yeah, here. Here and here, we see him. Man, do we need Jesus today? I think so. I think so. And we have him. We have him in this true, living, authoritative word. We need him. And if you don't have him in your heart and in your life, I would like to pray a prayer today uh, and the, where you can invite him in for the first time. So let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that because of your faithfulness that we see in history, we see in your word that doesn't fail, we see in your promises, we know that I can, we can trust you now for our lives, for the things that we're going through. We know that your faithfulness to us is great because your faithfulness to others in the past has been great. And so now I call on you uh, and I ask you, Lord, I confess my sin to you and I believe that you died on a cross and paid the penalty for my sin and that you've risen from the dead. You now reign at the right hand of the Father and I invite you uh, to be the Lord of my life. Teach me through your spirit. Teach me through this amazing word. Uh, Teach me all your promises. Amen. All right, we're gonna worship the God whose promises are true and real for you as they have been through all eternity.